Hey there, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. Our interview guest today is Paul Tenorio, the national soccer writer for The Athletic. Our interview was recorded on December 12th. A quick reminder, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. And we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Onward! Our guest today is Paul Tenorio, national soccer reporter for The Athletic. Paul has done tremendous work covering American soccer. He writes profiles, he does analysis, he breaks news. He really has become a star in the soccer media business here in the United States. Paul, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for such a nice introduction. Uh, Check, I hope, is in the mail, my friend. But uh, really excited (laughs) to have you on here. And congrats on on everything you've been doing um, for The Athletic. I am a a subscriber. I I read all your stuff. Um, And I guess just wanted to start by asking... What does The Athletic ask you to do? Yeah. um, First of all, thank you for subscribing. Um, (laughs) The cool thing about The Athletic is they tell you to go find good stories and different stories and tell tell stories in different ways. And and it's it's the best part of the job. It's the most challenging part of the job. The structure of The Athletic being a subscription service means that you know, if I'm going to write something that people can read somewhere else for free, it basically is pointless for the company and for the subscribers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no matter what assignment I'm on, uh, whether it's U.S. national team camp where there are 10 other reporters there or whether it's just a, a profile or a feature I'm doing on my own, you know, my goal is to tell a story that's different than what you can get anywhere else. And it's that's the best part of the job with the athletic. I think that's the best part of the model is it forces me as a reporter and a writer to think about things so differently and to try to um, figure out new and different angles that might make an otherwise, you know, mundane interview or opportunity become a little bit more interesting for the reader. Gotcha. Um, and what is sort of your career path? I, I know personally, but I don't know if all our listeners do, of, of how you got into this business. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I've always wanted to be a journalist as far as long as I can remember. And I've told this story a lot, but when I was really young, um, you know, we used to get the Sunday Washington Post. I grew up in Northern Virginia. And, you know, I was, I don't know, in first or second grade or third grade, something like that. And, I would every Sunday get the paper and read the the sports section mm-hmm. from as you know over a bowl of cereal before school, um, and at one point uh, the you know the post called to try to expand our subscription to a daily, and I answered that day, and I <laughs> pretended to be my dad with a deeper voice, and I uh, I switched my parents' subscription from a Sunday Washington Post to a daily <laughs> subscription, and you know over time they were like, what the heck? Why are we getting this paper every day? And they called the post to say none of we, we never asked for this, and they said no, we spoke to Jose on this date at this time, and. I had to come clean and admit that I had been the one to uh, increase the subscription. So I have always wanted to be a sports writer. And, um, you know, my, I grew up reading the Post, Kornheiser and Wilbon. And 
that was my goal was always actually to cover the Washington Redskins for the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And I was really lucky. I went to Northwestern for journalism and my first job out of college was at the Post. Wow. And, um, you know, I got the cool thing about the Post is when you're a young intern, you get thrown on to different beats. And Cindy Boren, who is the NFL editor, put me on Redskins almost immediately as mm -hmm. as kind of a assisting the the beat writers. Um, I was covering high schools full time. So mm -hmm. I, I was at the post for five years, got an awesome opportunity there to cover high schools. I did a lot of Redskins and then I did a lot of soccer because Steve Goff was very willing to to let me do whatever I wanted on the soccer beat. I grew up playing the the sport. Um, and then I went from the Washington Post to the Orlando Sentinel, um, wanted a chance to grow and be on my own beat full time. Um, and went and kind of took a risk that UCF would be a, an interesting beat to cover. They were changing conferences at the time, and mm -hmm. um, they actually they ended up. It couldn't have been worked more perfectly for me. The Big East, that the conference that they were going into, dissolved. So mm -hmm. I got to cover the business of college sports. Uh, UCF became a powerhouse that year under Blake Bortles, uh, who I had established a relationship with. Blake ended up being a top two draft pick, top three draft pick. Uh, so I covered a lot of NFL. He went to the Jaguars and then an MLS team landed in Orlando. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started covering MLS again full time with Orlando City and then moved to 442, which allowed me to cover things nationally. And now uh, and now the athletic. So it's been um, it's been a really interesting journey. But I, I, I think I would say the one consistent thing in my career um, since starting at the Post in 2007 has been soccer. I've, I've been doing some type of MLS since I first started working in journalism. Okay. And and your affinity for soccer started when? Uh, from birth, basically. My dad <laughs> is from Costa Rica. So, mm -hmm. you know, he moved to the U.S. when he was 19 years old and didn't speak a word of English. And so when I was growing up, my dad didn't know American sports. I learned American sports from my mom's side of the family, mm -hmm. um, but when I went in the backyard to play with my dad, I played soccer. And, um, you know, when we would go visit Costa Rica, that was the sport that my family cared about. So uh, as long as I can remember, soccer has been the main sport in my house and um, grew up playing in the D.C. area. I played for a club called Team America. Clyde Watson was the, the coach who would end up being an assistant coach at the Washington Freedom. Grant, I, I think you may have met him in your, your days mm -hmm. covering the old WUSA and so that, you know, just increased my passion and, and uh, it's just always been a part of my life. At what point did you actually think I might end up covering soccer full time? Was that recently? Was that a goal or how did you see that panning out? Yeah, that, you know, I think I first started thinking about it when I was at the Post. Mm -hmm. um, I, I decided to try to carve out my own little niche there because obviously Steve is an institution at that paper. And, um, and so I knew I was never going to be a full-time soccer writer at the post. And so I, when I started to cover a lot of youth soccer, um, in the sense of the development Academy was being founded and I kind of really went in on that and how pro soccer needs to change in this country to accommodate, uh, development and to, um, to do a better job of producing players within the U S and, and, through MLS teams. And as I started to develop contacts throughout the league, I thought, you know, this is something that I love to do. It's like 
this my dream was always to play soccer for my my entire life to be a pro soccer player and it was like man i could work in soccer every day and get paid to do that like this i need to start thinking about this <laughs> um and when i left the post you know that was part of my fear was that i would be losing the soccer side of things mm-hmm. um and i got down to orlando and almost immediately met phil rollins and he was telling me oh we're gonna have an mls team in two years and i was like mm-hmm. okay uh i'm from dc we're in like year 29 of attempting to build a stadium i don't think you know how things work in american soccer um but yeah i think probably you know when i when when orlando city first became a realistic mls option i thought all right this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna make mm-hmm. the transition and I'm going to finally be able to cover soccer full time. And it became a real option. And it was an interesting point for me because because of UCF's success and because of Blake Bortles' success and because I was able to break news about those two things, um, I was starting to get offers to cover bigger college programs, to cover NFL beats, uh, I, Major League Baseball beat. There were chances to go that direction. And... I stayed in Orlando because I um, because I had a chance to cover soccer and and mm. I'm really really glad that I did because I I I really believe if you're going to write about something full time as uh, as a job you really need to care and love what you're doing and and I couldn't think of a more perfect topic for me. It, you know, just one of the things that you do in your job really well is break news. Um, and uh, how how do you build? Uh, a news breaking network. I mean, I get this question because I do some news breaking myself, but like, it's it's something that takes a while, right? Yeah, it's hard. Um, it it takes it takes a while. I think part of it is just time because, as you know, you start to develop relationships, and sports is a it's a volatile profession, and so you may start with sources that are focused on one or two teams. And then people get fired or they go to new jobs and then your network starts to spread to more teams. And um, and then, of course, as you continue to do work, you run into more people around the league and you start to develop those relationships. And I think for me, there's been two keys. The first is a willingness to talk about soccer at any time and the nitty gritty of the league. And I think a really important aspect of any news breaking network is you can't constantly just be calling people to break news. You know, if you're, if you're just calling them to be like, Hey, what's going on with your team? Chances are they're going to stop picking up when they see your name on the phone. Um, so there's gotta be a willingness to just chat and just talk about soccer, talk about what's going on with the team and then not write anything that you've learned. Um, and then the second thing I always say is, um, and I think I first kind of got an idea of this. I read a profile, um, that I think Rick Mays did on Adam Schefter. And, mm-hmm. and this is something that I really took to heart is like, there's like an information circle in the league and you have to kind of insert yourself into that circle. You need to be able to get information and at the right times and in the right ways to give a little bit of information. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can put yourself and insert yourself into that circle where you're not just constantly getting, but you're also able to to give a little bit here and there, then I think you're going to be somebody that that people start to call as well as you calling them. And so that's been, I think that's been the most interesting point. And and 
it's it's hard because it's kind of like a chicken and an egg thing. Like you can't really put yourself there until you start to break news. But you can't. But when you really start to break news, then you then you start to get those calls. So right. Um. That that's the battle. Yeah. As as Jurgen Klinsmann would say, "Paul is a giver, not a taker." Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, no, I remember reading that that profile on Adam Schefter, and and it really made sense. Um, my own experience was when I was uh, reporting my book on Beckham and the Galaxy, you know, mm-hmm. back in '08, that I would meet up with people on the Galaxy, you know, Landon Donovan, whomever, and I'd spend the first sort of ten to fifteen minutes telling him what I'd learned about his own team that he didn't know, and then he would yeah. share with me, like on the record, like stuff uh, about what he was hearing and, and seeing, and. Um, that definitely, I think, is true, but it, you do have to build relationships over time. Um, I'm wondering, how often do you use Spanish in the job, whether it's interviewing people um, or, you know, do you, do you have an interest in working potentially in Spanish one day, whether it's writing or, or TV? Um, yeah, I would say... I would say that it definitely comes up doing interviews. Probably what's become more and more and more useful to me has been as MLS has grown its own recruitment network and started to buy players from over from in South America mm-hmm. more often in Central America, then developing relationships with agents and teams in those countries, Spanish has been critical. Um sending WhatsApp messages in Spanish, emails, phone calls, being able to speak to people in those countries in their native language about deals that are potentially happening. That's been probably the most important part. But we've seen also, as a result, those players are coming to the U.S. Um, it, it's been, I think, one of the bigger challenges for me has been from a national perspective. It's been used a little bit less because now it's 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 kind of story to story as far as kind of storytelling goes. So like when mm-hmm. I was in Orlando, I did a feature story on Darwin Saren as an example, all in Spanish. And he had such an interesting story and it hadn't been told. Well, it hadn't been told just because he wasn't being offered up for interviews because he didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. And when you're covering a team every day, you'll get those opportunities to speak to the Spanish speakers on a regular basis. For me, I'm like popping into a city to do a couple stories and popping out. Um, but like doing the Efrain Alvarez story and going to his parents' house, being able to sit in their living room and speak in Spanish, obviously that's super helpful. Or even to tell Efra, hey, I understand um, the way you feel being an American and a Mexican. You know, I feel Costa Rican and American. That's always been a big part for me with with dual nationals. That's why that that storyline has been so important to me um, because it's something I relate to. Um, as far as doing Spanish language stuff, I don't think I. It would be really hard to write to the level I'd want to write in Spanish mm-hmm. efficiently for me. Um, I don't have the confidence to do it. I, but I have thought about doing TV work. Um, I've definitely been trying to more actively speak Spanish in my day-to-day life just because I think the you know moving away from home, I live in Chicago now, my, my family's in DC. The amount of Spanish I'm speaking day-to-day in my house is almost nil. Um, and I think that like your Spanish gets rusty if mm-hmm. you don't do that. Um, but even I mean, this week my daughter started daycare, and I have her in a, a Spanish-speaking daycare where they nice. only speak Spanish. And so now every single day I'm talking to the teachers and everything in Spanish. And part of that for me was 
not just that I want my daughter to be bilingual, um, but that I do want to um, I do want to open up more possibilities for me in, in television uh, to, to go on and do Spanish language work. I've been really jealous of, of like what's what Sebi Salazar has been doing on ESPN. Mm-hmm. He does such a fantastic job with it that I'm like, OK, that that's got to be a goal for me. Yeah, and you've done some some TV work in English too, whether it was in Chicago or a few times for Fox Sports. Yeah, no, I mean, I I love doing TV stuff. Um, I think that it it opens, you know, you know, Grant. I mean, it it you've done so much work on TV and so much fantastic work. Like, there's so many levels to it that it's different than what you do as a writer. It it opens up doors, right? Because you're more visible, but the experiences that you get are just completely different. Being on a sideline for a game, you you learn so much more about how coaches communicate and um, the speed of play, the angles. Um, like after I would be on the Chicago Fire broadcast, you know, Frank Klopas and I would get together after games and mm-hmm. we'd go have a drink at the bar and he would have seen the game from an, a high up angle where I u- was used to seeing him in the press box and mm-hmm. I would have seen some different stuff from my angle down on the field. So it kind of helped me in that way too. And then you know, the experiences that are possible, you know, you the game, if I think about, uh, you can probably rattle off the coolest games that you've had a chance to cover where you're up close and personal because you're doing TV work. I mean, all of those things are really, really interesting to me. And it's something I, I definitely want to grow and do more of. Now, did you take, when you moved to Chicago, this U.S. soccer uh, edict of must move to <laughs> Chicago literally, or is it some other reason that you... <laughs> No, it, I was like, hey, if they're going to make everyone move to Chicago, I'm going to move there too. And then everyone's going to have to like run into me when I'm you know, walking with my daughter in the stroller. In fact, like, I'm, I'm shocked it hasn't happened yet because uh, Greg Berhalter lives in my neighborhood. And oh, so really? nice. it's, it's only a matter of time until I bump into him. I think he probably avoids me when he sees me on the street, um, understandably so. Um, but yeah, it wasn't for the weather, Grant. I didn't move to Chicago. Uh, my wife is from here, and so... That's why we landed. But yeah, it's been a huge benefit for yeah. sure that all of a sudden everyone in U.S. soccer is moving to Chicago. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you what stories uh, that you've done in 2019 that you're most proud of. And I will say first off that you've done some terrific stuff. My favorite is your Jesse Marsh story um, where you went uh, to Austria and spent time with him. It just it was the perfect timing around his first Champions League game, which they won, and just to, to be on the inside of that, I, I just really enjoyed that story. But wanted to ask you, uh, what are some of the stories this year you're most proud of? Yeah, I think for me that one's at the top of the list um, for a few reasons. I think the first is that, again, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about um, what the athletic asks for. And so I was looking for different feature stories or interesting feature stories. And I knew that Jesse coaching in Champions League was going to be really newsworthy. I also knew that everyone was going to write about it. Everyone was going to get Jesse on the phone. And and so I was like, how can I make this different? And, you, you know, you, you can't, <laughs> at least I can't yet at this point. Maybe, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should test it more, like just pitch feature stories in Europe every week, right? <laughs> and see how often they're going to send me there. Um so I, I, you know, but I, I felt like, hey, the athletic is really open to to things like this. If it's a really good story that's worth telling, you know, a flight to Austria isn't impossible. Right. And um, 
and it was it, it did it worked out perfectly um jesse was super open to it and helpful once i got there and you know i i think the way the story came together for me made it a little bit more fun in that sometimes you go over and you know exactly when a story is going to run and you know exactly like what the editing structure is going to be and a lot of times with these bigger features you know you spend a couple weeks on it and i was in austria i think i was like my second night there and it was the night before the champions league game and i was going from i was going to go from salzburg to munich the the night after the champions league game to go to bayern munich and they had a champions league game that day and i was going to meet with some young americans that were there mm-hmm. and so i was like oh i should probably check in with my editors to see you know I just assumed I was going to write this story on my flight back from Munich and spend the weekend editing it and it would come out the next week. And they were like, no, like we thought you'd file like after the Champions League game that night. And I was like, <laughs> oh boy. Um, so I sat in like I this beautiful street that my hotel was on in Salzburg and there was a bar down the block and I just sat outside and uh, with these this huge mug of beer that may have been refilled more than once. <laughs> Um, knocking out the the structure of the story the night before the Champions League, putting down. Luckily, you know, I I my process is when I spend time with someone, I come home and I write everything I can remember from that scene so that I don't forget things later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had some stuff down, but it came together quickly, and so I was like a little bit scared of what it would what the end product would would look like, and um, you know, I, I was really happy with how it turned out. So oh, that yeah. that story for sure is at the top of the list. Um, you know, I, I look back on, um, you know, some of the work I did on, uh, on the Chicago fire moving to a new, to a new stadium. Mm -hmm. I I was a little disappointed. It it leaked before I had been working and reporting it out. But, you know, for me personally, having gotten the information I did, even though I didn't break the story, um, you know, it was something that I was really happy with as, uh, as a reporter that I was able to kind of use public information that was available and mm-hmm. some whispers I was hearing to start to confirm some stuff. And uh, it actually broke from a fan on Twitter <laughs> while I was on my my baby moon with my wife in Hawaii. And the plan was for me to write it when I got back from Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a little bit demoralizing. But it was a story that I felt like I was really on top of and I was happy with. Um, and then I'm, I'm trying to think of a couple other... Oh, you know what? Actually, this is, this is probably one that wasn't on someone's radar, but... Um, for me was a really uh, kind of a sign that I was getting a feel for what I wanted to do at the athletic. And I was at a U.S. national team camp, which Grant, you can relate to this. When you're at U.S. national team, everyone is getting the exact same quotes from these people. Everyone's got to write the exact same stories. And we were all talking about Tyler Adams and his new right back role. And, you know, I was like, how can I make this different? How can I, figure out a new way to write about this. And I ended up calling, getting Bastian Schweinsteiger on the phone and talking to him about um, Philip Lahm and how Lahm had been used in that role under Pep at Bayern Munich. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it was a quicker turnaround story, but you know, to me, that's like those, that type of story is my goal with the athletic. It was like, okay, this is just a regular national team story, but I'm going to make it different. And you know, I, I walked away from that story being like, if I can consistently think of different ways like that, then I'm going to, I'm going to do okay on this beat, this national team beat. I'm still relatively new to being there on every single trip. 
Um, so that one, that one for those reasons stands mm-hmm. out to me as well. Yeah, no, I remember that story. Um, one of the big stories uh, in this offseason for MLS is collective bargaining. Uh, the, the CBA is about to expire, and there is the possibility of a work stoppage. Uh, how are you approaching trying to, to cover this, and, and what do you think might happen? I mean, it's, it's the most important thing in my offseason. It's, you know, it's my entire focus pretty much. Um, this, this is, this is a, a, a massive story that the implications go beyond, you know, for me personally, the story is not just about breaking the news of the CBA and what happens. The fallout of whatever that CBA looks like is going to have a lasting impact on this league. And I think that it will have implications as to the outlook of ownership and how seriously they're taking what a lot of people feel is an inflection point for the league ahead of 2026 mm-hmm. and the World Cup being in this country. Um, there, there, In my reporting to this point, there are certainly a f- several owners who feel like they would like this CBA to accelerate the growth. Um, there is still a faction of owners who don't want to push the growth too quickly. They feel like MLS is still losing too much money. And so while my focus is going to be on trying to break the news and be on top of what's happening in the negotiations, the more important stories are going to happen in March in the weeks after the CBA comes out about what what it means for MLS, where it's going. Because if they are too conservative with the growth, then I think it, it should be rightly concerning for fans of the league um, about what it's going to take for certain owners to open up their wallets a little bit more and to try to stimulate growth through more spending. Um, if they are a little bit more aggressive, then I think we can start to project what the TV deal is going to look like in a, another couple years after that. And then what there should there could actually be, depending on the length of the deal, another CBA negotiation ahead of the World Cup. Um, but we'll be able to project a little bit more growth. So that to me is the most important thing to come out of this entire CBA story is not necessarily the news leading into it, but the analysis coming out of it um, and and trying to determine who were the strong voices, what pushed the what pushed the CBA in whichever direction it goes. Um, because no doubt it's for me the most important thing that we've seen for this league probably since I don't know, I mean, even since the 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 push for major expansion right mm-hmm. like that that decision to to expand as aggressively as they have is the is the current story of of the change of mls and this cba is going to be i think is going to matter more than than what we've seen in the last five years with expansion yeah i mean do you get the sense maybe that the actual possibility of a work stoppage is sort of under, being underplayed or underrated right now every time i feel confident that a work stoppage is going to happen somebody calls me and then like <laughs> brains on my parade and they're like it's not going to happen um i i i agree with you i think there could be a work stoppage and it just comes down to i think it's going to come down to how hard line mls approaches the negotiation at the start mm. um if they go wildly in one direction in order to try to land at a more medium result at the end, I think it's going to push the players more quickly toward a work stoppage because the players, uh, 
I think would like to see some concessions early on on some of these easier issues. And there are some bones that they're throwing out there publicly to the owners to make it happen, right? Like charter travel, right. you know, increasing the minimum number of flights. That's like not a not a difficult concession to make. Um, increasing the minimum salary for players. You're, you're talking about chump change in comparison to professional sports on a, almost any other level, right? Um, but if the league hard lines on those issues, then by the time you get to player movement in free agency, by the time you get to, you know, eliminating these pots of money um, and giving teams more autonomy, those those are what the league actually cares about. Um, and I think that I think that the players are pretty solidly in in agreement that those two areas need major change. And I, I think there could the consensus among the players I've spoken to, the leadership I've spoken to, is that they are prepared to strike and that they feel like they have more support within the total group than they did in previous years. And saying that matters because they agreed to strike last time around and then backed mm -hmm. out at the last second. So if they're more prepared to strike this time and they got the vote to do it last time, I, I absolutely think it could happen. I do think it's interesting also on the owner side, and this is the impact of expansion, because you have all these new owners coming into the league who are paying a lot more money to get in, and they all seem to be on the spectrum of, we want to spend more money on players. I, I can't think of, are there any of new owners in the last five to eight years who are like, you know, Hunt family style, craft style conservatives? I, I, I just don't think there are. And yet the hunts and the crafts still have a lot of sway over what the ownership stance is. And I'm very curious to see how that plays out. Yeah, that's the battle. And and actually that that might that's a story I didn't talk about, but I kind of wrote about that at the very beginning of this year is the the internal struggle within MLS ownership right now mm -hmm. of they all pushed back on the idea that there are factions, and I spoke to several owners in the league, um, as well as people connected, uh, in the league at different levels and league headquarters, all these different places, they all pushed back and said, it's not as simple as saying there are, there's a group A and there's a group B and we're battling constantly, but there absolutely is, I don't want resentment is too strong of a word, but frustration probably at the unwillingness of certain owners to, change their mindset about where spending should happen and why and the impact that spending could have on this league. And ultimately, you know, the owners like the Hunts and the Crafts argue, hey, look, we've been investing in this league for 23 plus years and you guys are investing, have been investing for just a couple. But the reality is that the Hunts and the Crafts haven't invested to the level of some of these ownership groups who have come in, spent $200 million or $250 million on an expansion fee, $150 or $200 million on a stadium, another 50 to $60 million on a training facility. They're, they're half a billion dollars into their investment at this point. So um, that is going to be the most interesting dynamics. And I think what is most intriguing is that there are maybe – two or three owners who are going to tip the balance. And so, you know, who are those owners and, and who can convince them to kind of go from the conservative side to the more aggressive side or vice versa? 
you know, that that to me is the interesting part because it, it may be, you know, an ownership group in uh, Kansas City, for example, that that could sway things who, by the way, just set a record for their franchise on right. spending on players. Uh, it could be a lot of people feel it might be the crafts who hmm. suddenly have built a training facility and are recognizing that maybe they can't wait until they have their stadium in Boston. Um, but it is it is a, a very political battle going on with this owner with these owners going into the CBA discussions. When you look ahead to 2020, aside from MLS collective bargaining, what do you think are going to be some of the most important American soccer stories to watch? I think every year it's expansion. I think Miami in this year could be the most interesting story. And the reason why is because they have been shooting higher even than LAFC and Atlanta with some of the people that they've been trying to sign, including Mm -hmm. coaches. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to get those deals over the finish line when you're shooting that high. And we've seen that with even the stuff that's come out to this point of some of the names they've been chasing. For example, Marcelo Gallardo at River Plate as a, as a potential coach, you know, they're, they're talking to him, recruiting him. And all of a sudden his name is in the mix for the Barcelona job. Uh, Patrick Vieira, his name is in the mix for the Arsenal job. Mm -hmm. So when you're competing with clubs like Barcelona and Arsenal, um, I think it shows a strong level of ambition Plus the added mess that Miami has been, right? The stadium dialogue that's going on, the fact that they're building a temporary stadium in Fort Lauderdale. Um, There's just so many angles to that market. Will it be successful? Can it be successful without a Beckham-like, Ibrahimovic-like superstar? Um, I think that is a a huge part of it. Um, I'm also interested to see... we we're, We're starting to see two different trends pop up. The first is some teams that are spending money on their homegrown players. Seattle kind of led the way with the deals Mm -hmm. they gave Jordan Morris last year, Jordan Morris and Roldan. This year, Dallas is pushing it with the deals that they've now given Ferreira and Paxton Pomicall. And, you know, the sudden willingness to pay domestic homegrown players TAM contracts, I think is very intriguing because you have to put those players on the field to produce. And we saw what it did for Jordan Morris this year. Can it have the same impact in places like Dallas with a guy like Paxton Pomicall? Can it start to push these players into prominent roles in MLS like we've never seen before? On the flip side of that is the the continued push and pull of willingness to sell. And you can have a success story like Alfonso Davies in the same year that you can have Aaron Long and the Red Bulls being unwilling to even discuss selling him um, because that that debate in 2020 and the willingness of the league to truly start to sell players, um, I think, can, could have a big impact on um, MLS's relevance in the global soccer economy and in the global so- soccer market to its audience. Um, so those are the two trends that I've been watching early are late in this year that I think are going to have a big impact next year. What's it like covering MLS full-time? I mean, there aren't that many full-time soccer writers in America still, and there's not that many whose, whose job is, is, you know, MLS from a national perspective. Well, you can't see me right now, Grant, but I'm, you, I immediately started rubbing my forehead because out of stress. (laughs) Um, There's so many different layers to it that are, 
completely unique. I mean, on one hand, it's a constant battle for respect and relevancy professionally, right? To to be taken seriously by anyone and everyone to to say to to your company or to other companies to an audience, hey, these stories are important and they're relevant. And you know, I will say one cool thing about the athletic is because it's a subscription model, you know, the subscriptions speak for themselves. You know, the production right. and the interest in your stories can be compared to writers in every other beat and they can see that there is interest in soccer. So that's been neat for me. Um, but it is like a constant a constant maybe internal battle more than external of saying like, you know, these stories are relevant, these stories need to be told. At the same time that you're trying to push for relevancy for the the beat that you're covering, um, the league is still trying to come to terms with being covered on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, this is a battle that I'm sure you are quite familiar with, having been there in the even earlier days where there were f even fewer full-time writers covering soccer. Um, but it's the little things that can make days a lot longer that I feel like my colleagues don't deal with as much when they cover the NFL or mm. Major League Baseball where you're battling for access or you call to give a team a heads up about a scoop and they push out a, you know, a release uh, on their own channels before you can get your scoop out. You know, Those are things that, like, that make it difficult. And, of course, I think the most interesting part of my job is the current atmosphere around American soccer is so negative right now <laughs> and pessimistic and so it's easy to get caught up in hearing the voices on twitter because they're constantly mm -hmm. there right they're in front of me all the time and allowing that to impact my coverage impact my opinion about um a certain story or the way a game is going or um to read criticisms of one of my stories because a faction of people think it's too positive towards mm. something that they're angry or upset about. Um, that's been in the last two years, the biggest change in covering American soccer. That's been the hardest part for me now with such a prominent role is like, how do you manage telling good stories and telling the right stories at the right time without being influenced by what is a very strong echo chamber because it's right. such a small community that still cares about this every single day. And it's so easy. It's thus so easy for them to reach you and to reach you loudly. Um, that it, that, you know, I'm trying to be diligent about how much it impacts that. It doesn't impact right. how I cover stories. No. And I, I, I hear you completely because there's a, a group of, of not, I don't know how big it is, but they're very loud on, yeah. on Twitter that if I cover MLS the way I would at, at any other sport or any other league, they have a problem with that because they honestly think that my coverage should basically always be about MLS. Um, you shouldn't exist this way. And, okay. and so that part you just i guess have to ignore you know and and thank god for the mute button but yeah uh, for sure. but, what a great invention that is by the way <laughs> but that's what you have to deal with and I, you know i used to cover college basketball i never had to to deal with that uh american soccer is an interesting culture but um and, and i think you're you're right there's a lot of negativity out there some of that obviously been earned by Sure. Uh, the U.S. men's national team over the last few years in particular, or some of the decisions U.S. soccer might be making. But um, 
Well, Grant, it's the same decision. They're making the same decisions we are in a way, right? Like, and, and to a higher degree, like how much do you listen to that, right? right? And and to some levels, I think U.S. soccer should be a little bit more aware sometimes and and listen to what people want or don't want. And then at the same time, you have they have to be less aware and less responsive <laughs> to some of the individual uh, voices, right? Like the collective voice might be pushing them in the right direction, but responding right. to every single individual voice is probably not the way to run a business. <laughs> but it, you know, that, that, that's the other interesting dynamic of covering soccer is like they, the teams and the leagues and the organizations we cover are also very responsive to your coverage, to the voices that you're also hearing on social media, to the response to every decision that they make. I mean, you just don't get that covering these massive leagues like the NFL or, or like college sports. It's just a machine. Um, but there you do get it with, with soccer still. And I think that's just part of where where it exists in, in the media landscape right now. Well, one thing I can tell you, and I think a lot of other U.S. soccer fans would say this, is that we are glad that you are covering soccer full time and not covering some other sport. Uh, and... Uh, it's an absolute pleasure reading you and having you on the show. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks so much for having me, Grant. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Paul Tenorio as well as producer Harry Swartout and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, it would really help us if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review. And we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. See you next time.